I'm Zach. I'm a musician, a former worship leader. I helped destroy Mars Hill Church, and I'm not really sure what I believe anymore. I'm Dave. I'm a Bible theology nerd, a movie buff, an occasional preacher, and an evangelical. And I didn't come up with a joke this time. Sorry. It's already a joke enough on and of itself, I guess. <laughs> I'm sorry. This is Veterans of Culture Wars. Veterans of the Culture Wars is a podcast where we talk about the beliefs, history, culture, and personal stories from evangelical Christianity. We welcome you to the podcast, whether you are a believer or not. And tonight, we are going to talk about uh, homelessness, which has been a huge political topic out there in the news. Um, lots of partisans talking about it, arguing about it, um, bringing it up in conversation. So um, our guest works in homeless services and advocacy in Los Angeles. He is a graduate of Fuller Theological Seminary, and he often writes on the intersections of theology, justice, and equity, as well as pop culture. So his first book coming out August 9th, 2022, is available for pre-order, Grace Can Lead Us Home, A Christian Call to End Homelessness. Kevin Nye is with us. Hello, sir. Hey, how you doing? We're doing well. Thanks so much for coming on our podcast. Absolutely. I'm excited to be here. Cool. You know, um, to get this out of the way first, uh, your last name is Nye. There is, in fact, mm -hmm. no relation to Bill Nye, the science guy, right? No, I wish. Um, <laughs> none that I'm aware of. Okay. Cool. Seattle icon, Bill Nye, uh, the science guy. I, I, I don't know if you know that, but here in Seattle, it's very important to us. That, that Bill Nye is one of our own. <laughs> I didn't know that. I did know that he lives in Pasadena, which I did for a long time. And a lot of, when I was at Fuller, and a lot of people said that they saw him and like ran into him in Old Town Pasadena. And I, it bothers me that I never did. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't know if he'd be all that impressed if you were like, my, my name's Nye too. So I, I feel like we could have made some kind of connection on it. He's a nice guy. He seems like a pretty genial fellow. I, yeah, I, he, I, he, he I also want to argue with Ken Ham. Like oh. we have other points of connection. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. There you go. Yes. He had the, um, yeah, he did that right? for our listeners, the yeah. famous debate with um, answers in Genesis and the creation museum out in Kentucky, Ken Ham. Um, I think I've seen parts of that debate, but that was, yeah. Ken Ham is not the most persuasive of, I guess, apologists, we'll say. Be to begin the show, uh, do you want to share a little bit of your evangelical story, whether good, bad, or ugly? Kind of, you said you went to Fuller Seminary, which is a, a pretty big evangelical school, but as I understand, probably centrist, maybe even somewhat left-leaning in some ways as well. Um, but what was your experience like with evangelical Christianity? Sure. Uh, so I grew up in the Church of the Nazarene denomination, uh, if y'all are familiar with that. Um, one for a few years. Okay. Um, which is pretty, pretty conservative, um, pretty evangelical. Um, I, 
in middle school uh, experience at that time, what I understood to be a call to ministry, um, which everyone loves in a good conservative evangelical church. Uh, so I, and that's pretty early um, for when most, when most people kind of start to perceive that call or, you know, they're discerning the on, spiritual so. gifts on you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And it was just like a lot of attention paid to me <laughs> at that time. And a lot of kind of grooming toward that, that end, if you will. Um, so, you know, I finished, uh, finished high school being a pretty, pretty staunch youth group kid. Um, went to Southern Nazarene University in Oklahoma City, uh, doing a theology and ministry degree. And, and it's there that I started, um, ironically enough, is where I started kind of what I think now is called deconstruction. <laughs> uh, but at that time was just uh, being confronted with new beliefs by theology professors while also being given uh, kind of new ways uh, to think and conceive of a lot of what I was deconstructing. Um, and a lot of that was happening in the classroom um, with my Nazarene professors. I think like any, like any denomination, the theology professors are usually more like left-leaning or progressive than, you know, your general uh, parishioner or even clergy. Um, I definitely experienced that. Um, but kind of on top of what they were teaching me in the classroom, I, I got exposed to kind of what was the movement at that time of like Rob Bell, Brian McLaren, Shane Claiborne, like um, these kind of more popular writers who were also, you know, asking a lot of questions and deconstructing things. And so when I wasn't reading stuff for for my classwork, I was devouring these other books and sometimes able to do them at the same time. But um, I've, I ended up finishing my theology and ministry degree there and not really thinking that I wanted to be a youth pastor, which is pretty much the only option available to you at, you know, 21, 22 years of age when you finish college and say that you want to work in a church. Uh, so I decided to go to seminary um, and I went to Fuller, which as you said, yeah, I think centrist is probably the best way because if you're, if you're actually pretty progressive, you think that they're too conservative. And if you're conservative, you think they're too liberal because they really just walk that middle <laughs> really well and make no one happy. Um, it probably depends on the professor, I imagine. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and it depends on like which part of the institution you're talking about too, because uh, yeah, you can learn a lot of pretty progressive liberal um, liberation abolition type things in the classroom. But if you tried to start like an organization or a club within the school, like the alumni can come and shut that down in a way that they're not like, you know, peering into every classroom. So um yeah, I definitely, I got to expand a lot of my, my learning there. I did an MDiv, uh, and, but I also kind of looking back at that institution, I'm not super <laughs> impressed with, you know, their, their progressive values, but I, I certainly got a lot out of being there. Um, but I did, I ended up 
graduating and still not really feeling like uh, a, you know, pastoral ministry was what I wanted to do, at least not at the time. Uh, and that's when I started getting into uh, work in, in homelessness services. Was that kind of like a union gospel type ministry that you got into in Los Angeles or how, how did, how did all that happen to get into homeless services? Yeah, great question. Um, so I, I basically was, I was looking for work um, just in like, I wasn't necessarily looking for faith-based um, at that time my I was in kind of a struggle with my denomination around my ordination where they weren't super wanting to ordain me because uh and this is around like 2015 2016 so we're talking like you know Trump is about to be elected and like everyone's kind of the culture wars to yeah you know, there you go <laughs> you guys know they're 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 ramping up in a kind of new and different way and people are kind of having to choose sides and be more um, outspoken about where they stand and what camp they're in. And, um, and I got caught in all that, um, just trying to be, be honest, uh, while also not trying to uh, be divisive and not trying to leave the ordination process or call anybody out. But essentially, I was just being asked to be extremely clear about my positions on extremely controversial topics. And, and when I did, I was essentially told that um, I would not be able to be ordained if I wasn't able to articulate specifically what they wanted to hear. Um, and so to get back to your question, I was looking for work in that field, kind of knowing that I was looking for a potential career outside of ministry. Um, so I was applying to just kind of traditional service providers and, um, and that's where I ended up working is at a non-religious nonprofit. And that's where I still work uh, to this day, almost six years later. When it comes to dealing with the issues surrounding homelessness, what are, what are some ways of thinking that you find are, are common in evangelical, in evangelical circles that, that, are a hindrance to actually resolving the problems. Yeah. So something I, I uh, kept running into in, in writing my book was that a lot of these issues are broad, you know, American or even Western ideas that we're running into, but they are also in the church and often they're worse in the church. Um, yeah. So there, there's one key one that, um, I think I think I bring this up every time I'm on a podcast or talk to anybody about this. It's a study that uh, the Washington Post did asking people um, how they perceived of poverty as and given two different options, whether poverty is a result of um, bad luck or unfortunate circumstances is as one possibility or on the other side, um, and I'm messing this up because I don't have it right in front of me, but essentially that it's the result of uh, poor decisions and moral failure. Uh, and generally more people say moral failure than bad luck or bad circumstances. Uh, but when they isolated Christians, Christians were more than twice as likely to say that it was bad choices and moral failure. Um and to me, that stems from 
one really just key insidious myth that we have and that's that people who are experiencing homelessness or people who are poor deserve it uh, i think that yeah. that whether we articulate it or not that is a central belief that is in all of us uh that has has really found a home in the in the evangelical church uh because it props up uh you know a protestant work ethic it it props up a prosperity gospel. It props up all of these kind of very convenient, but I believe false theologies um, that make us feel like we deserve what we get. And like, we are, we are blessed because we're, you know, we make good choices or, you know, they were the opposite of that. Yeah. Yeah. It seems, it seems like the, the, the attitudes toward homelessness are, are the other side of the coin uh, from the attitudes about like economic policy, where so many Republican voters are have this mindset of they are all pre-rich, that we don't want to tax the one percent because I'm going to be that, um, that because I'm just going to keep working hard, I'm going to end up being a multimillionaire, a billionaire. And the reality is the way that our society is structured, it, I, 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 it would seem accurate to say to me that you are more likely to become homeless than to become a billionaire. Oh, absolutely. We are all <laughs> far closer. Like how many people are living paycheck to paycheck right now? Yeah. I am, essentially, <laughs> like I have been my entire life, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I now have a mortgage. I now have equity in that. And so there's some security. Um, like I don't have savings. I don't have a college fund. I don't have a retirement fund. And I live in Seattle where the cost of living has gone up an, an extraordinary amount and it's terrifying. Yep. And I think about if my kids have any hope of being able to afford to live here, I, I am somebody that feels strongly about my roots and my, and my home. And I, I imagine a lot of people become homeless because it's the idea of leaving the, the, the place that they know is, is next to impossible to deal with. Absolutely. And that's, that's another myth that really needs dispelled, uh, which is that, uh, especially in Los Angeles, um, which it's this myth that people move to Los Angeles to be homeless. Um, and, and we see that kind of even in the city too, especially in, in the beach towns. I, folks all the time will say, oh, these, these are people coming from downtown. They're coming from, you know, from other parts of the city because they want to be homeless on the beach. Yeah, they're um, just camping or something. I've yes, heard, yeah, heard people say yeah. That. yeah. And, Los, and Los Angeles does that broadly. California does that. And it happens everywhere. You know, one city is like, oh, these are people from this city coming here because we're giving them good resources. And so it's going to attract more people. And and like by and large, the data shows that that people experience homelessness very, very near the last place that they were stably housed. Um, like you said, people put down roots. We all do this. Like if I, if I ended up having to sleep on the streets tonight, I would do it right outside where I am now, or like right outside my work or right outside somewhere where I have 
community and access to some kind of resources, right? Um, and that that is the trend. Um, but we're very good at uh, perpetuating that myth because it makes it that much easier to essentially other them, right? To say like, they're not part of our community. They're not one of us. They're outside invading our inside. And so we are justified them in pushing them back outside. Back when I was a political conservative, I, I, I felt such a tension and even a cognitive dissonance with this issue of, of homelessness around here in the Seattle area, which I've lived in most of my life. And I told myself that I believed in free markets and not being lazy and picking myself and all of us up by the bootstraps and working and all that stuff. Um, but as a, as a Christian, I did rescue search and rescue missions with Union Gospel Mission down in Seattle, which is in Pioneer Square. And we would go around, um, I think it was a Thursday night, you know, I did this a couple times, we'd go around to the different sections of, of Seattle where homeless tended to congregate. And we would hand out food and socks and, and all of that stuff. And I would meet and talk with these people. And in my head, you know, and people were all over the map, you know, as far as what they were like. And, and I just said, you know, what is the reality of like a business leader in Seattle hiring some of these people that, that don't have jobs? Some of them did have jobs and just couldn't afford to live. So that's kind of another misnomer, like they're all lazy and they're not working. A lot of them do have jobs and actually are working yeah. and are just out on the streets. Um, so I had like, you know, attention in my soul because, you know, some of, some of these people had families that were living in a van with them or, or a tent, you know, just living on, on the street. And it, it just was it, was, it was one of those things that when I saw it, it was another thing in my mind that kind of chipped away at my conservative political beliefs because I would be like, well, what is the solution? How, how are we going to solve this? Like we as a church, I can keep going out and giving these people food and giving them dry socks, but it's not changing a system or a structure that is keeping, you know, other people in our city, other citizens, other human beings in these conditions. I mean, and you, you all have both suggested a key piece of this is the cost of housing, right? It, it keeps it keeps rising astronomically and, and wages are still stagnant <laughs> and yeah. work is less available. Uh, employers are freer and freer to not, you know, give benefits, not give guarantees of employment to give people crappy hours to not even make full time. Um, and for as long as that's the case, we're going to continue to see this, right? And whether it is because you're working full-time and it's not enough to afford an apartment or because you're disabled and the only chance of income you have is from Social Security and they only give you $1,100 a month, what's that going to get you in Seattle? What's that going to get you in Los Angeles, right? Um, we, we have just a complete unregulated housing market that allows people and now by and large corporations to buy up large swaths of housing and who have no incentive to keep prices low. They have the exact opposite <laughs> incentive, yeah, even profits. if it means, even if it means keeping units vacant um, for extended periods of time to drive up the cost of housing, right? Cut off the supply, increase the demand, raise the price. 
um, it's it's so awful. It's atrocious how how unregulated that is, and and what it's doing. It is pushing more and more people out onto the streets. You 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 tweeted the other day about somebody that 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 has stuck in your mind for a long time that that came in uh to your office looking for help with these issues he was homeless for the first time and this is somebody that had worked for decades and retired and was now on a fixed income and the the rent kept going up and and you sort of summed it up saying simply aging is now a pipeline to homelessness if if we don't do anything soon that's that's just how it's going to be um how how widespread is that and and how how it's hard to rank like like what are the areas that we should focus on and try to tackle and what should we be calling and emailing our our representatives to have them try to work on um it's so complex in this country um but i i wonder if you could talk about that story and i'm also wondering if if the, this issue is is uh, more widespread in the U.S. than other countries, as you know, our healthcare system is tied to our employers and all that. Yeah, so I think I think something that you're hitting on is really important, which is, and I I tend to describe homelessness as sort of like the catch-all or the like the bin uh, where people are discarded from all of our broken systems, whether it is our, our, like how we care for those who are aging, how we care for people who are disabled, who have mental illness, how we care for people who have substance use disorders. Uh, like every way in which we marginalize people, homelessness catches like the, the, the last, it's the last resort, right? Um, and so we see all of those groups overrepresented in homelessness. And so there is a way to look at that and say, like, how can we, how can we address this? Because literally, it's all of our broken systems that are creating this problem, right? Um, the good news is, everyone who experiences homelessness does have one thing in common, and that's that they need housing. Uh, and ultimately, that is the solution. Uh, like, I support fixing all of those problems, and we need to to create a just and equitable society. But if we know that everyone who we're talking about needs housing, we can build housing and we can put people in housing uh, and we can actually afford to do that, not just because we're the richest country or the second richest country on earth, uh, but also because we spend enough money not doing it in the form of policing, hospitalizing, shelters, services, uh, all these things that we spend money on basically to maintain homelessness are more expensive than if we just housed everybody and paid their rent for the rest of their lives. Um, yeah, I was wondering what you thought about these. We, we've seen several instances of, of cities and and Utah a few years ago did this, just giving the homeless people houses. I'm, I'm looking at a story in the Washington Post talking about uh, a study was showing that New York City was spending over $40,000 annually on every homeless person uh, with mental problems, you know, between the the police costs and emergency room and all all of the stuff related to their impact in the city and and more and more people are saying just 
put them in houses right. and that's that's going to take care of those costs. And that's yeah. that's one of those ways that gets connected to talking about defunding the police that makes the topic of defunding the police less scary when we're saying uh, we're not talking about a completely lawless society. We're talking about how we spend our money and how we're taking care of the people in our society and is the goal to fine everybody that's having that having that has to sleep on a bench or is the goal to improve everybody's quality of life right and uh so yeah i wonder if you could talk about how that's gone in the past and and if if that seems like a scalable solution i mean it's it's successful when it's actually implemented um and uh, yeah i mean talking about kind of what is the the lowest version of defund the police is like let's stop having police answer the calls that they don't want to answer in the first place right right <laughs> like the and and i'm an abolitionist so I'll, I'll go way further than that but like if we just talk about like taking away police responding to calls of people experiencing homelessness and using that money to fund supportive housing i mean we'd make a huge dent just right there but with incarceration i mean medical costs are really the biggest one more so than policing that you know when when unhoused people get sick they don't have primary care largely they they're not getting you know their physicals so when they get sick they get really sick and they go to the emergency room uh and and the stuff that that they're that they're dealing with is often really advanced or a, a lot more complex uh and and they don't have insurance so you know that cities, counties, state, federal fronts that bill, you know, and again, all of these, so many of these could be solved by just investing in housing and either subsidizing rent or just completely paying the rent kind of on a case by case basis. Uh, a lot of people do receive benefits and can contribute to rent. Um, so it's not a complete, we just pay their rent 100%, you know, um, and it is, it's one of those things that it becomes very, very clear what what the issue is, because not only is it sort of the bleeding heart liberal right thing to do, it also ends up being fiscally conservative thing to do. And yet neither of those groups are really all that supportive of it. Um, and yeah, and ultimately realizing that is what for me unlocked the what is the theme of my book, which is grace. Uh, because what, as I kept seeing that and going, so what is the problem? Like it's, it's the kind, gracious, like thoughtful thing to do. And it's the financially smart thing to do. Why aren't we doing it? And it just, it keeps coming back to that myth that we started on here. It's that we just don't think they deserve it. Yeah. There's I, that NIMBY mentality as well, that even in, in, progressive communities tends to really pop up where they're mm -hmm. like yes theoretically it would be great to provide housing to the homeless but i don't think i'm going to vote to approve uh multi-family zoning in my neighborhood because it just i just really like the look of all these single family houses and it would just it would it would really change the community too much right and there's all these polite ways of putting it um but if we don't have the the actual 
housing units in numbers enough to to provide housing space for all these people, then it's going to continue to be an issue of scarcity and all that. But even that's not always the case, right? We have tons of vacant housing, right? Um, you 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 mentioned that earlier. Like like, do you do you know like? Is, is there enough housing in this country to provide a space for every single person without having to build more multifamily units? Yes. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I, I'm aware of that statistic and I don't, it's not one that I harp on or really focus on because for me, like, I do think we should do something about that. And there's a lot of interesting stuff proposed, like a vacancy tax where if mm. you if you have a vacant unit for more than three months, you have to pay a fine or a tax on that so that you're incentivized to fill it. I think that would help, um, especially in terms of what we're talking about, kind of the, like the trickle down into homelessness. Like that, that for me is homelessness prevention more than homelessness resolution um, in terms of the people that are currently on the streets. Um, but we we really need to build a lot of housing and we need to make it accessible. And that's the piece where I don't think that the vacant units, because mo- they're they're privately owned or they're owned by corporations, right? That I don't think that's going to be the solution. Uh, we need housing that is accessible and isn't run through the private rental market. Uh, I mean, we we need public housing essentially. Um, or or housing that is that's operated by you know service providers who are who are equipped to deal with with people who have been experiencing homelessness for for 30 years and do have you know multiple diagnoses uh, that that in, that interfere with their ability to live uh, on their own sustainably um, yeah. we need a lot of that and I think my lens is also often more there because that's the, the, the type of clients that I work most closely with um, are, are people who experience chronic homelessness and, and kind of dual diagnoses. Yeah, I like how you, um, how we're criticizing both conservatives and liberals, just so our conservative friends out there just know we're not just picking on them. Mm-hmm. But I think it is, you know, another issue is building the multifamily home in, in the neighborhood, of course, is just going to lower the property values. Yep. And then for a lot of the middle-class liberals, it's like, well, my, the biggest driver of my wealth as a person is the equity in the house. And that's kind of what becomes a dicey political issue. But it comes down to, I think, you know, whether we're Christians or um, ex-evangelicals or humanists or whatever we are, I think we really have to ask ourselves the question, you know, other human beings living on the street, like, sh- shouldn't there be things that we sacrifice so people can have a shelter? I mean, like food and shelter, right? We're talking about the really basic things of, of being a human being and the basic needs that we have. Um, so I, I think, you know, whether it's me, us, those of us listening, I mean, if we're going to solve this, there's going to have to be sacrifice. We have to, we're going to have to accept that, that sacrifice. Yeah, um, I mean... I- I think it comes down to the question of do do I deserve for my property to just accrue in value more than people deserve to sleep indoors? Good question. Uh, 
I also want to talk to you about some of the, we've kind of hit on some of the myths of homelessness that, that I've heard from different people as well. Um, do you have any statistics that like the number of homeless people in the United States right now, how many of them actually, what percentage actually do have a job and they're actually trying to work and make a living? It's just, they are making minimum wage. They're in a, an expensive city and you know, as far as first and last month's rent to get into an apartment, like you're talking an astronomical amount of money compared to what they have coming in. Um, do we have statistics on how many people actually have jobs versus how many people are actually unemployed that are on the streets? It's a great question. I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. Every time I do an interview, uh, people ask me statistics questions, and I, I always think I should look those up before I go on the next one, and I never do. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, maybe, you know, I'll try to look it up and, and put it in, in show notes. Um, and of course, the other one you've talked a little bit about before is oftentimes when I talk to people about homelessness, it's just the attitude of, oh, they're mentally ill or they're drug users. But there's obviously a lot of people who aren't any of those things. It's just a person who happened on bad luck or unfortunate circumstances that led them to be on the streets. Yeah, those those are statistics I'm a little more familiar with. Uh, so mm -hmm. in terms of mental illness, uh, it's around thirty percent. Uh, so oh, a lot, homeless people. Yeah, so a, a lot a lot lower than you know most people you're talking about kind of give credit for, um, and and it makes sense though because those those are people that are more visible, right? Like. Uh, you're not on your drive to work. You're not going to see the family sleeping in the van, but you are going to see the guy kind of going through the dumpster or running across the street, you know, without a crosswalk, you know? So in terms of, I, I think that's kind of where that comes from. Um, and the, the substance abuse one, I think that kind of comes again from our, our kind of desire to, give a reason that moralizes the issue right um that statistic is closer to like 40 or 50 percent um however it's it is really important to couch that in uh i do want to demythologize the idea that substance use leads to homelessness uh because very often it's the other way around uh that home people are not substance users until they experience homelessness. Um, but again, I think the reason that that one gets perpetuated is we're, we're looking for reasons that people don't deserve help, right? Yeah. Uh, and that people are drug users is a very, very classic way of, uh, of placing the blame back on them and, and putting an expectation that is often unmeetable uh, in order to to prove that they deserve help, it's the, and it works as a great way to justify not helping. People yeah, out. exactly. When when people say, oh, "I don't want to give money to to the guy at the crosswalk because he's just going to spend it on drugs," right? Yep.
uh, we, we like to talk about about movies now and then on here. Dave and I first became friends because of bonding over film stuff. And uh, I, I saw that you wrote uh, about Nomadland. Mm-hmm. Um, that that was um, that that and The Sound of Metal were my favorite movies of last year. Uh, Chloe Zhao's film The Rider was my favorite film the year it came out. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm a big fan of Chloe Zhao. And uh, Nomadland, for those that that haven't seen it, deals with uh, this culture of houseless partially by choice but folks that that decide to to get off the grid get un, unplug from from society and and live a nomadic lifestyle of, of of living in in their their vans and and caravans and stuff and that have various places where they they congregate and and form their own communities in various spots around the country and uh they have they show how like Amazon has kind of taken advantage of the existence of this community and in and setting up warehouses or whatever where, where where people can can work for a time there and before they move on. Um, and and the, this character's journey started because she was was living in a in a factory town where the factory shut down and and it was a one a one factory town so essentially the the town was gone overnight and um there was there was no future there and and this is what she this is the path that she ended up on um there's a scene in, in a movie where I, I think she used to be a teacher i think because a, a, a kid comes up to her and 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 talks to her and and, and she has a conversation about them saying we heard that you're homeless and she says i'm houseless i'm not i'm not homeless i'm houseless and she kind of takes pride in in that distinction um i'm wondering your your thoughts on the movie and if if there are other movies that you recommend that you think um have uh, an an empathetic and uh valuable uh, perspective on homelessness mm. that that maybe have, have moved you and may, maybe influenced your decision to 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 be in this line of work mm. yeah so what i really liked about nomadland is that it it did show kind of what that a major pathway to homelessness and for one it showed a very non-traditional version of homelessness which i think is really helpful right. Because we're very, we're very used to seeing homelessness. Like when we hear that word, we picture like the guy on the corner with the sign looking disheveled, you know. Right. Um, and, and homelessness takes on a lot of different forms. So that was one thing I liked about it. There was dignity in in, mm-hmm. in the people, in, yeah. in that film. And and secondly, that it showed kind of the the way that disconnection and and tragedy leads to homelessness um mm-hmm. so not just economic but that was kind of a theme that all these characters had in common was there was there was a loss of some sort of personal connection right um people losing a spouse or connection to a town um because ultimately uh you know we've talked on here like we're we're all closer to homelessness than we are to being a billionaire but 
there's more than just what my like economic assets are that keep me from homelessness, right? If I lost all of that tomorrow, I have a community in my church. I have friends. I have family who would not allow me to sleep on the streets. Um, so a really, a really common thread um, for the people that I meet and among people who, who do experience homelessness is not just economic hardship, but the disconnection from, from mm. family, from community. Um, and then the third thing that I really loved about the movie is that it showed how that connection can be found in the midst of homelessness without sacrificing the notion that homelessness is not ideal. It's not that it's idealized. It's not that it's not precarious. I mean, there's a, there's a scene in the movie where you really understand that uh, because she gets a flat tire, had there not been one other person there to give her a ride, like she was done, you know? And, and the yeah. movie really kind of confronts you with that. Um, and that comes right after a really beautiful scene of uh, her finding community amongst all these sort of lost souls, you know? Um, and that community piece, I feel, needs to be understood more by everybody um, in homelessness, uh, in talking about homelessness, because when people do experience homelessness, uh, people are amazing and resilient and they find ways not only to survive, but to thrive in their circumstances. And so much of the way that we respond to homelessness sabotages that. So when unhoused people build encampments, uh, we go, oh no, there's a bunch of them now. <laughs> we need to get rid of them. We need to sweep the encampment. We need to scatter them. We need to move them from this community they've built. We need to put them in our shelter that has our rules, operates according to our schedule, and that functions the way that we believe that it needs to function. Um, and, and the movie just does such a good job of showing that the communities that, that unhoused people build for themselves are often really beautiful uh, and they should be celebrated. And honestly, when I watched that movie, I, I thought of kind of how like in some ways, and again, not to idealize homelessness, but to say that within those circumstances, they found something that I think a lot of us who are housed have lost, which is a sense of interdependence and like community that relies on one another. Um, and that's the kind of thing that, that is often forged in homelessness that can be and should be celebrated and built on and instead is, is treated as a threat very often. Yeah. That, that idea of chosen families. Um, it's something we hear a lot about with like LGBTQ folks mm -hmm. who, and, and this, this connects to what you were just saying, as far as um, the homelessness being uh, the end result of, of not just a bad life situation, 
but a bad life situation, uh, you know, a loss of a job or whatever, combined with the lack of of a social net of, of a community to support and to and to keep you from sleeping on the street. And you think of how many uh, LGBTQ uh, teens don't have the support of of their parents and yeah. their families, and one end up homeless, and two have to to find and, and build that chosen family yeah um to to replace the one that that isn't there to support them mm-hmm. um it it it's one of those many reasons why <laughs> there's so many interrelated issues here yeah but right now there's there's so much going on to try to demonize trans kids yeah. and the parents that are trying to do the right thing and support them and the things happening in, in Texas and such, I can only imagine that would just lead to more homeless LGBTQ mm-hmm. kids. Yeah. Well, and, and um, honestly, I'll, the I'll, percentage of homelessness for, for them, you, you, you're probably somewhat familiar with that. That's really high, right? It's, it's certainly, it's overrepresented for sure. Um, and especially I, I work not just in Los Angeles, but specifically in Hollywood. Uh, and I can tell you, um, I don't work directly with youth as often because there are organizations that specialize in that, um, that are really great in our area, but we see a ton, like a ton, a ton of, uh, LGBTQ youth who are fleeing the Midwest (laughs) essentially Mm -hmm. and coming to Los Angeles. That's the one group that breaks that rule that I told you of people who experience homelessness where they were most recently housed is if they are fleeing like a community Mm. that is pushing them out. Right. Um, Right. And, and a lot of them come to Los Angeles because we have the reputation of being, you know, woke or progressive or affirming. And, and the, the unfortunate thing is that, I mean, Los Angeles might be a great place to be gay or be trans, but it is not a great place to be poor. <laughs> and, and so in Hollywood, especially because, oh, it's Hollywood, <laughs> all the same people that are afraid of, you know, trans kids say like Hollywood is responsible for it, you know? So there is just an association. I think that a lot of LGBTQ youth come to Hollywood specifically when they don't know where to go. What do you think um, another politically charged issue around homelessness has been uh, safe injection sites or safe Mm. places to use drugs? And you mentioned maybe the statistics are, you know, 40 to 50 percent of homeless people are, you know, drug users, whether they got into it after they became homeless to kind of cope with, you know, the grief and pain that that comes along with with having that happen to them. Um, and obviously, I've heard conservatives, um, they just made big hay out of the Biden administration's policy that they were giving money to these safe sites. And then conservatives were trying to say there's there's crack pipes included in there to help people smoke crack or whatever. But that, that's obviously been disputed. Are, are safe injection sites helpful for um, homeless people who are struggling with, with addiction issues? So is it? It's hard to say because they've not been legal until just recent in the U.S. and and the one that has opened in New York is the only the only sanctioned safe injection site in the country. Um, 
how Vancouver had them for a long time. Yeah, so they they exist in Canada, uh, they exist in Europe, uh, and they show really promising results. Um, I support them. Uh, I have for a while. I support the entire kind of harm reduction methodology around them. What they what these sites are showing more than anything is exactly what they're intended to do, which is that they're saving lives. Um, right. Ultimately, uh, if you study addiction and you understand how it works, you recognize that lack of access does not curb addiction, that, uh, that somebody not being able to get to a clean needle does not stop them from shooting up. That just means that they will use a dirty needle. Uh, they will use whatever it takes. Their, their addiction is telling them overcome any obstacle to achieve this high. Uh, and so by providing safe injection sites, uh, it is not enabling. It does not encourage use. There is not more use happening because that is being provided. It is only safer use that is happening. Uh, and so what, what happens is, again, it, it, comes, it comes right back to this idea of, of deserve. Like, what do people deserve? Um, do drug users deserve to do drugs safely is, is the question. And I think people have a hard time answering that because we have so moralized addiction and drug use that we we actually want bad things to happen to drug users because we think that it will, you know, shock sense into them or that it will like interrupt the cycle. There's, there's really this, there's a very pervasive myth in uh, recovery culture around hitting rock bottom um, that essentially encourages us to do harm <laughs> to people who use drugs in the idea that it's going to, uh, to shake them out of it. But the very definition of addiction is that you pursue it despite negative consequences. Uh, and so all we've done in our policy, whether it's by not promoting safety or by uh, incarcerating people, uh, punishing people, all we're doing is throwing more and more negative consequences on it. And all that addiction does is just continually rise to meet that challenge. Um, and, and it's frustrating because we've over the last hundred years learned so much about addiction and like brain science and, uh, how it connects to childhood trauma, um, that we, we really have, again, we have a great grasp on how to treat addiction. We just can't get over this, this moral hump, uh, that just tells us, like, no, people who do drugs are bad and we need to punish them. <laughs> yeah, it, it is fair to say, right, that 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 somebody has to want to get help to be helped with addiction. Right. Is, is that is that a fair thing to say? Because generally these, these safe injection sites are are saying we can't help them if they're dead and we can provide the resources to help them when they're ready to use those resources and in the meantime, we can keep them alive or do, do our best to help them stay alive until they're ready to get help. Yeah, I mean, I would phrase it, I, I would rephrase it to simply say that like, 
if a person is going to improve their life, they need to be a willing participant in that. Um, Got it. And, but I think we need to define improvement more broadly, right? And that's a really key tenet of harm reduction is that uh, recovery, uh, and this is kind of one of the pioneers of harm reduction, his name is Bill White. He started defining recovery as any positive change. Um, mm. rather than defining recovery as full stop sobriety, uh, yeah. saying any positive change uh, with the idea that people who use drugs uh, want to make positive changes in their lives. Um, and I think that that is true across the board. Uh, I mean, doing drugs is a very poor way to commit suicide, <laughs> right? It's a very slow way yeah. like if that is your goal is to destroy your life there's much better faster more effective ways um people who use drugs can make choices to improve their lives beyond full stop sobriety and using more safely using in community these are all positive changes and so to me what harm reduction is is not just saying and this is what safe injection sites are it's not just saying we need to keep people alive until they're ready to make positive choices it's actually saying we're giving more options for people to make positive choices we're giving we're empowering more choices uh with the hope that as people begin to start making positive choices they're going to continue on that trajectory um the subtitle of your book is called A Christian Call to End Homelessness. And I know, you know, we have Christians that listen to our show. We have ex-evangelicals. Uh, we have humanists. We have non-believers. Um, what are effective things that churches can do to advocate or help with this issue or, um, you know, different community organizations that maybe, you know, some non-believers or ex-evangelicals may be a part of? Um, essentially, what can organizations do, um, private organizations that aren't the government, to better help and advocate for this problem? Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the stuff that we've been talking about. I mean, it's we need housing. Uh, we need lots of it. We need we need to try some things to increase the affordability of housing. Um, we need to try some stuff we haven't thought of. Um, we need to be able to we need to be willing to risk getting it wrong. Um, you know, whether, whether it's rent control, whether it's a vacancy tax, like there's, there's all kinds of options out there and all of them have, have drawbacks and things that are like, oh, well, this, this could lead to that. Um, we need to try it because <laughs> what we're currently doing, uh, is going to lead to worse. So, um, I think it, so in terms of kind of grand, like how you vote, how you support kind of local initiatives, um, housing, housing, housing. In the meantime, uh, I think whether you're a church or whether you're just a person living in a place or who works in a place, uh, we need to start building community and solidarity with the unhoused people who, who live near us. Um, I think churches have a really unique opportunity to do that as property owning institutions who have that property uh, really underutilized, um, whether that means 
there's a, a church in Nashville that just donated a huge piece of their lot to, to build tiny homes. Uh, there's a lot of unused property that could be gifted or, or built on to build housing, or it could just mean using your facilities to welcome people in. Um, you hit on this earlier, but we're, we're seeing a big wave of criminalization around the country of people experiencing homelessness, which means that if you are unhoused, like you can be criminalized, arrested, cited, fined for literally just existing because you have nowhere to go. It'd be great if churches were places they could go, um, whether it's to sleep or not, even just during the day uh, to, to interact, to, to meet people, to build solidarity and community with one another and with the church community. Um, neighborhoods can do this, you know, coalitions can do this. A lot of people are already doing this. Um, and I think one of the first things I encourage is to find in your city who are the advocacy groups who are doing solidarity work with unhoused people. And at the very least, just follow them on Twitter because they, they have the inside track for who's the politician who, who says one thing but does another. What's the legislation that's really down ballot that nobody's going to pay attention to, but that could make a big difference. Um, get involved in those groups or, or form one for yourself out of your church, out of your, out of your workplace or just in your neighborhood. I'm wondering if, uh, if you have any um, hope or, or insight as to whether changes in the way people live that have been brought about by the pandemic uh, could lead to solutions for housing issues. I'm thinking of the fact that so many companies switch to, to remote work and employees are finding that they don't have to live in a downtown area near their office to work and, and they're moving out and, and going to different areas. Um, you know, a lot of these empty former office buildings become usable space. Now, obviously we've seen the, the, the cost, uh, you know, the value of, of housing uh, for, for, you know, uh, uh, homes, homes, the real estate values for, for, for people's houses has gone up like crazy in the last couple of years. But I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if there's a shift in the way that that our society functions that has been altered by the last couple of years that could be helpful for resolving homelessness i wish i could have that hope but i don't um mm. for a couple reasons one is that i think that covid has caused us all to sort of realize how precarious all of our situations are um and it's caused us to to insulate um, and part of that was because of the virus, right? We, we had a reason to like stay in. Um, but I also think it's just kind of driven up the fear of, I need to make sure that I have everything I need within my reach and that I'm not dependent on my community at all. Um, which I, I don't think is true. And I think it's the wrong lesson to take, but it does feel like a lesson that we're taking um i so it's like charitable giving way down like like are people hoarding what they have because they're worried about the future more and not 
giving to these organizations that are that are trying to work on on helping these social ills? I haven't seen numbers on it. It wouldn't surprise me. But again, I, I yeah. it, it, you have to ask: Is it hoarding, or is it that people lost work? And you know, like where is that charitable yeah, sure, sure, sure. charitable money coming from? Um, and how did money shift during the pandemic? Right, like those are numbers that we do have, where we saw most people suffered and the world's billionaires got more billionaireific <laughs> during astronomically yeah. richer. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I think what what worries me is that the pandemic has has really actually escalated a lot of a lot of the issues that have got us to where we are, and and also to me shown how how desperately we cling to the idea that everything is okay <laughs> and normal. Um, I mean, just seeing like how quickly we as a country wanted to get back to just doing all the same old stuff, even though there is a virus that can kill us <laughs> um, is, is really just another version of like the, in Los Angeles, I can go to like, or, well, this uh, Nomadland, get right back to it, is a perfect example. Uh, when Nomadland won the Oscars, two days before they cleared out a homeless encampment to make sure that as the celebrities were arriving to the Oscars, they didn't have to go through a, <laughs> an unhoused encampment. Ugh. And then celebrated a movie that's about homelessness and patted themselves all on the back for making it, you know? So, um, and I say that just as an example of like how, how willing we are to sort of tolerate um, extreme poverty in the right smack dab in the middle of huge excess. Um, to me is, is the same thing as how quickly we're just trying to get back to normal, even though there's a deadly virus out there, you know, like it's, right. it's, it's just this weird, this clinging to a version of, of ourselves that's not really true and that's not sustainable. Yeah. Um, what are, what are uh, the topic of charities? What are some of the good charities out there that help with the homeless that you have had experience or knowledge of that a high percentage of what we give actually does go to help? The problem. Hmm. So a couple things I'll say there. I mean, I think that in my experience, the best organizations are are the smaller ones, um, and they're the ones that you kind of have to like do your own research uh, in your own area. I mean, I I would certainly I support like habitat for humanity more than i support like the coalition of gospel rescue missions but like i would rather you find something in your neighborhood to give to you know um i would also say it's really really hard and again this is why you sort of have to do your own research or recon or know like who you trust uh because there is a sense that like I do, I want to make sure my dollars go to, to helping unhoused people. Uh, but I've also, I've been on the nonprofit end. And one of the hardest things to get people to, 
to pay for, but that makes a huge difference is staff. Um, and paying staff a living wage that allows right. them to stay staff. <laughs> um, yeah. Because there's, I, I can't tell you how sucky it is to go through case managers because when an unhoused person loses a case manager halfway through their process, it's like starting over with a new therapist, you know, like there's so much trust and rapport that goes into building those relationships. And most organizations, because of how funding works, have to pay like close to minimum wage for case managers that are dealing with, you know, really an, a problem that re really deserves people with multiple like degrees and credentials in mental health and substance use. And, and we, we can't afford those people, you know? Um, and so I, that's just me kind of bristling at the language of like, because then there are other organizations that take your money and their CEO makes like a million dollars. Like, and that's not what I'm talking about either. So it just, it really, it comes down to like knowing and trusting an organization, but also trusting them to use money on, on staff and on hiring and keeping good people and, and paying those people enough to justify the hard work that they're doing. And, and, and yeah, allow them to do it at a high level. Fantastic. Um, well, I think we're coming to the end of our time. We, we greatly appreciate you coming on and look forward to your book. Uh, maybe just uh, a couple fun questions here, if we could. Please. And I have one that I want to ask that I think is going to drive Zach crazy. So Ooh. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and ask this one because I saw that you have done some writing on the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So I was going to mm -hmm. ask you your favorite Marvel movies. Okay, are Zach? Are you a hater? Are you are, are you Martin Scorsese? <laughs> uh, no, I'm not a genius. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I I just I, you know, and I liked it when they were a genre, not when they were like ninety percent of movies. And I'm tired of promising young filmmakers getting to make a really good movie and then getting pulled into the, the Marvel factory. And so I didn't need, I didn't need the Eternals. I would have loved to see Chloe, a real Chloe Zhao movie after Nomadland. Yeah. And I know she went to them and she pitched it and wanted to be part of it. So that's a little bit different. Um, but it's pretty difficult to watch one and, and feel any sort of individual authorship. Um, and I don't know. I get it. I'm, I'm glad if people enjoy sure. it, but yeah, they're not, I've, I've seen a few. They're not, they're not really my thing, but that's got cool. it. Yeah. And I, I think I can split the difference here because they really are for me. Like I grew up playing with action figures and reading comic books. So for me, like the, it's, it's a thing that I love and I want them to make, so many of them and i want to watch all of them and also <laughs> as a as a person who loves who loves film and loves other types of film i do lament the the market share and power and manipulation that disney <laughs> has because of of marvel and and star wars uh, even though i enjoy both of those franchises 
And I, I expect that if, if I'd grown up reading the comic books and stuff and had any sort of nostalgia for those characters, I would be a lot more into it than I am. Yeah. But I just I just didn't grow up with that. Yeah. But so to answer your question, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it kind of comes, it depends on what I'm evaluating them on, like which one I is, do I think is the best movie that has the most like the auteur breaking through the mold, like um, in a positive way. Like I think Black Panther is easily the best example of that. Um, but what is, what is my favorite? Like, which one do I want to throw in on a Saturday afternoon? Like it's probably Avengers Infinity War or Captain America, the Winter Soldier, um, Thor, Thor Ragnarok, um, like, the, the, you know, the, and that's another one that, you know, does have some, you know, auteur breaking through in yeah, a lot I mean, of I ways. Yeah, because Taika exactly. Yeah. yeah. Directed, you know. It's a lot easier for a, a comedy auteur to get into that genre than, than a Chloe sure. Zhao. Right. Um, but yeah. So, and it, and it changes all the time in terms of what my favorite is, but yeah, that's, that's my answer. Non-answer. <laughs> no, that was great. Uh, I, I don't know what your other silly questions were, Dave, but I, I just wanted to point out, uh, we already had Megan Crozier on a, a few weeks ago, but um, so people heard us talk about the Exvangelical karaoke night. Um, so we don't need to go too, too far into that, but you, you put that on uh, with, with Megan. I think it was your idea initially mm -hmm. and, and you, you were the, the host and, um, I, I performed Michael W. Smith's love crusade on that. I got to rap, um, uh, almost as good as Michael W. Smith. So like really top tier rapping. Yeah. If there's um, a recording of that. We need to put that at the end of this episode. There's <laughs> very intentionally, there was very intentionally not a recording <laughs> of, of that night. I wanted it to be safe. I wanted people to, you know, uh, belt their hearts out with no repercussions. And also I didn't want to get sued for copyright. So we did not record it. Yeah. 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 I think, I think that was a good choice. I think our, our memories of it are, are pure and wonderful. And uh, it, it was a good feeling being part of it. We're probably going to do another uh, one. So yeah, that's what, that's what I've been hearing. It, uh, it sounds exciting. I, um, so you, you you did a song towards the beginning, right? Yeah, I opened. Um, my yeah. wife and I sang "Testify to Love" by Avalon. Oh yeah, okay. Dave, do you know that one? I do. I, I didn't know that one. I, I, okay, I wasn't. I, I kind of tapped out of CCM in like '95. I wasn't huge in the Avalon, but that song was all over the radio. Oh yeah, that was. Uh, so Dave, did you have did you have one more question? Was there oh uh, something you were burning to get to? Sure. Next uh, Exvangelical Karaoke Night, what are you going to sing? Ooh, so I've been, I've got a couple. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll say them. Uh, I was going to say I want it to be a surprise, but no, like this is a treat for people, people to listen if they want to know. We have I'm, an exclusive. It's an exclusive. And I, an exclusive, I totally may change my mind. Um, <laughs> I do, I think I want to sing In the Light. DC talk. Um, and I, it's a good one. I, it is a good one. I also, um, one that I had hoped would come up in the last one that didn't, um, I want to sing butterfly kisses. 
Oh, yeah, I. I vote for that one. That's 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 an incredible yeah, pick. Well, it's like it's the song that everyone forgets exists until you name it, and then and then oh, everyone yeah. has that same response. Like, oh my god, oh, oh. <laughs> yeah. it like was that, so huge. It I was mean, like country pop. Like it, it was a massive crossover hit. People forget about that. No, it's it's huge, and it's it's so it's so cringy, and also like. I mean, you could you could talk for hours about like what's going on in that song and what it reflects about <laughs> everything that's wrong with you know purity culture and all that. Like that that song contains multitudes. <laughs> I, I I expect Mike Mike Huckabee spent several nights listening to that and crying. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh no. It's okay to be in touch with your feelings. I'm just saying it seems like the sort of thing that would move him deeply. Right. Oh yeah. That that song <laughs> and like the movie Braveheart are are yeah. American masculinity. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Oh man. Well, uh, Kevin, so the book, uh, people can pre-order it right now. Uh, mm-hmm. Grace can lead us home, a Christian call to end homelessness, August 9th of this year. Uh, where can people find you on the interwebs? Yeah, I'm most active on Twitter. Like that's where you guys both <laughs> know me from. Um, I'm at Kevin M Nye one there. So I didn't get to at Kevin M Nye in time. Uh, I'm also that on Instagram, but I'm barely on Instagram. Follow me there, and it might encourage me to post more, but probably not. <laughs> um, and my website is kevinmnye.com. Very cool. All right, Kevin M Nye. Mr. Butterfly Kisses coming your way sometime soon. I cannot wait. Yeah, it's, <laughs> well, it's nighttime. I need to go do some bedtime prayers. <laughs> Thank you for listening to another episode of Veterans of Culture Wars. Wherever you like to get podcasts, you can leave us a rating and a review, and that helps other people find our show. Follow us on Twitter at VCW Pod. I am at Dave J. Lester. Zach is at Muzak, M-U-Z-A-C-H. You can go to Zach's website, muzak.bandcamp.com to see some of the art he's done as well as listen to music that he has made. Music and logo for the show done by Zach. Thanks again for coming on down to the VCW and remember as always that the podcast is free but you still need to tithe 10%. Bye-bye everybody. 